Father, we thank you for, as the song said, the, your word that nourishes us. Lord, we also thank you for the sacrifice you made by giving your son to die on Calvary. And Lord, he died and he was buried, but he didn't stay there. We thank you for the resurrection. And Father, as we continue before you this morning, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be in tune with your spirit, that we might be able to know what you would have us to know, but to do what you would have us to do and be who you would have us to be. We thank you and praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So ours is a generation in which everything nailed down is coming loose, in which the things that people said could not happen are happening. And thoughtful people are asking, where is the glue that reasonable people use to reassemble disintegrating and disarrayed parts? Eugene O'Neill makes one of his characters say it graphically. You cannot build a marble temple out of mud and manure. But we continue to try. Man is insanely committed to the proposition that he has the answers to his problems. He is forever building his little sandcastles only to discover the inundating tides of reality, washing them out to sea, and then seeking someone to blame. I first heard those words that are as true today as they were 41 years ago uh, in 1981 from one of the men that I really admire in my life, Howard Hendricks. Sixteen years after that, in 1997, I was able to attend a chaplain corps course that was on the subject of mentoring taught by Prof. Hendricks. And as it would happen, because it was a small course, very intense, we had a week together, we were able to spend a lot of time with one another, much of it privately. And while I would not say that, that Prof. was intentionally my mentor, other than how he mentored everyone through his deep and abiding love of teaching, nevertheless, I sat under his instruction for six years. We were not strangers. He still had, it in 97, he still had time and, and ministry left, but I knew that that was my only time. What might I learn from him that I hadn't learned in class? What might he offer me in terms of ministry and life? And if there was one thing that he could pass on to me, what would it be? So I asked him. And in essence, he summed it up this way, as summed up through another person, actually, by the name of Abraham Heschel a man who lost his entire family to the ravages of World War II, either through bombing and or the deadliness of concentration camp.
camps. He said this, when I was a young man, I admired clever men. Now that I'm old, I admire kind people. Prof, steeped in theology and life experience, simply understood that I already had everything I needed to know. John, you don't need to know anything else. You know, you, you already know more than 99.9% of people in the world about theology. By the way, that's why he said world. Be kind to everyone you meet. I've never forgotten that. And I hope that I live my life by that. So I just let you in on a private conversation that happened 25 years ago. The echoes of which still are heard today and even in this congregation. This morning, we're going to listen into another conversation that was private, at least at the time, that occurred nearly 2,000 years ago. And it was near the end of his ministry when Paul was telling Timothy what was necessary. Paul didn't know that there was time left for a second uh, Timothy He was passing on things. He was trying to make sure that Timothy knew what kind of person he needed to be in the day that he lived, which leads us to a question. And that is, what kind of a woman or what kind of a man does it take to live in this society in order to make a permanent impact on it? And Paul gives us some clues in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. If you have your Bibles open, please feel free to read with me here. And where he's really, he's really grooming Timothy for next generation leadership. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul here is is passing on condensed wisdom to Timothy by saying the kind of people that need to be in order to make an enduring change on a sick society. Be that kind of person, he's saying to Timothy. And there are six things that we need to look at that Paul tells Timothy here. First, to build up the flock. Second, which we sang about, which I I thought was marvelous, to nourish ourselves on the word of God. Uh, Third, diligently practice godliness. Fourth, avoid ungodly teaching. Fifth, work in the gym of spiritual discipline. And finally, have a continual hope in the Lord. The first thing we see is that Paul calls Timothy a good minister of Christ Jesus. Now, 
understand the Apostle Paul, certainly not back in that day, was not thinking of Timothy in terms of clergy. Uh, he was not thinking of him as a, a pastor other than a gift and a, a priest other than a believer, as we all are. The word that's used here is actually the word deacon. And what we have is he's talking about not a professional class of ministry or something along those lines. He's talking about, he's not referring to an office. He's certainly not saying that Timothy was a deacon in terms of office. Timothy was an elder. What he was saying was that Timothy was a servant. And as a servant, you build up the flock. And by the way, passages like this, and this isn't isolated, we understand that while the elders have a duty to build and to protect, all of us as servants of Jesus Christ have the duty as well to build one another. And that's what a deacon is, one who serves, one who builds here, of course, Paul is using the word in the broadest possible sense, that is, as a good servant of Jesus Christ. That includes all of us. All of us are servants of the Lord, especially if we have a, a ministry in, in, in teaching or leading or discipling and something along those lines. Paul knew Timothy was up against it, that Timothy was facing a challenging, demanding in dangerous situations. I mean, Paul, in short order, would lose his life to this hostile government against these newly birthed Christians, let's say. And he knew that it would not be long before he would not be with Timothy. The text says, I put these things before. So if you're reading that, it says, put these things before the brothers. The word before is not actually there. I understand how translators, they want to get the sense of the thing. But I actually like what the original says. And that is you put it under. In other words, you don't put it before like it's a smorgasbord. Here, here's, here's these seven things. You pick these things. No, what he's talking about is you undergird believers with these things. This becomes a foundational. This becomes something that is uh, where you can uh, launch from, where you can come back to rest. It's a place where you can stand. Second, Timothy tells him, hey, listen, if you don't eat, you'll starve. If, if you eat poorly, you're going to uh, suffer and perhaps die early. Uh, and that's a very important thing about nourishing yourself with the word of God. The Christian Century, a magazine, I'm not sure exactly what their uh, bent is, but I'll read you the, uh, the editorial, and, and, and this is from 2011, and maybe you'll have some idea. I've got an idea. Read my lips. No more sermons. Just stop preaching. We lay people are now literate. We can read books on our own or take classes. We certainly don't need clergy teaching 
or preaching at us. By the way, I actually agree with that statement. I don't think we should teach or preach at anybody, but that's his intent is something else. The very idea, he goes on to say, of a sermon is offensive. A lecture where we can't argue back or even ask questions. All of you are having a discussion with me in your brain, whether you say it out loud or not. Some of you are arguing. Some of you are agreeing. Whatever it is, it's not nothing. And so the very idea, he goes on, of clergy as authorities or intellectual leaders, while in many congregations most of the lay people are in fact more educated or better, so shut up already. No more sermons. Give us liturgy, sacraments, and mystery, and stop the talk. You have nothing to say to us. And then he, he makes a pretty good point after that, I think, where he says that the actual sermons are the pastor's conversations uh, with, with their people. You can agree with some things and disagree with others, but you know, this notion has been around for a very long time. It is not new. In the 60s, in the early 60s, there was a bit of a war engaged in England on an opinion page where someone pointed out that regarding sermons, they were no longer necessary because, in fact, the man said, I can't remember a single sermon that I've ever heard. And uh, this went back and forth for weeks until finally uh, someone wrote in and said this, I don't recall what I had for dinner last night. In, in fact, I can't tell you what I had for dinner on any given night. But one thing I can say, if I hadn't eaten all those years, I would have starved to death by now. The notion uh, that you don't have to remember everything in order for it to be uh, beneficial. But Paul combines two elements here. One comprehension, the other action. He says, trained in the words of the faith. In action, that is the sound doctrine that you have followed. That is knowing and doing. You, you need the good, sound words of faith and the good, sound teachings, but you also need to follow them. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Biblical maturity is not about how precise you are in your theological language. It has nothing to do with winning an argument. No wife who has ever felt unloved by her husband ever cared one cent if they knew that Ephesians 5.25 read, Husbands, love your wives. Knowledge alone is meaningless. In fact, the Apostle Paul says not only is it meaningless, it's also counterproductive. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can be a real difficulty. So first you build, and second you learn, but third, you do. The Air Force has what's known as the first command. Actually, all the services have something similar to that. And the reason it's called the first command is because that's the first place you go. 
You go to the first command, whatever it's called, in this case it's Air Education and Training Command, in order to go to whatever form of basic training you're going to go through. Now, basic training is a fascinating exercise in which they take people from a diverse cultural society and they give you a military culture and a military set of values. And that's how you operate in any kind of a a unified uh, way. So with the Air Force, it's known as the Air Education and Training Command. So some people, they say, well, when you say education and training, aren't you making a, isn't that a difference without a distinction? I mean, what's the difference between the two? And I thought, well, you know, I need to point that out because maybe some people in the church, maybe some people who live in Christ think that knowing the word of God is equal to doing the word of God. Like having a good thought about something is equal to doing something good for someone. So there's a huge difference here. Education is the process of gaining knowledge, comprehension, and understanding from study, from teaching. And training while related, is the process of learning the skills necessary for a particular job, for example, or or a particular skill. So when I wanted to get my pilot's license, I had to go to ground school, and I had to go to flight school. Ground school is where you learn things about what makes an airplane stay up in the air. That's an important thing to know. Weight and balance, important thing to know. How to get from point A to point B, important things to know. But the goal is to help you pass a knowledge test. On the other hand, if you were a passenger in my plane, you would not necessarily care what I know. In fact, it might bore you to tears what I know about flying. I don't care what you know about flying. What I care about is can you fly? What I care about is can you take off? Can you land? Those are the important things. The goal of flight school is to fly the plane. We hold in our hands You hold in your hand the most extraordinary book ever written, ever put together. The most amazing story ever told. And it's the only place in all of humanity, in all of human history, where you are given bedrock truth. Everywhere else you look, there may be truths of a different sort, but not like this. No book is more important to learn from than this book because it will, in fact, it is designed to change your life. It's not designed for you to know something. It's designed for you to do something. The goal of learning doctrine 
is not to win an argument. It is to live rightly. So fourth, in addition to the things we've already mentioned, is to avoid ungodly teaching. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Your version may well read old wives' tales. You know why it reads old wives' tales? Because that's what it says. So we don't like that phrase anymore, so we say silly and ir- irreverent, uh, you know, kind of kind of myths. But I, I actually kind of like the, the other one in the sense that properly understood, what is, a, what is that? What does it mean? They're short, clever, pithy statements designed to pass on knowledge to the next generation. Many of them are very good. Some of them, not as, not as much. So you have things. Here's some patently false ones, right? Feed a cold, starve a fever. Wait an hour after eating before you swim. Sitting too close to the TV will ruin your eyes. Coffee stunts your growth. Some of these may be really old, so you never heard them, but I heard all of these. Shaving makes your hair grow back thicker. Those are the kinds of things, right? And as some of these were actually in Paul's day. The biggest one being, watch out for the evil eye. Spitting three times will ward off evil and bring good fortune. Some of these, these are old ancient Greek things. They got them from somewhere. Some people, this still is a live thing for them today. Never hand someone a knife. I can think of many reasons why you wouldn't hand someone a knife, but they say it's because it will ruin the friendship. Why? I don't know. Here's the reason I said that. Why is Paul saying this to Timothy? Why in the world would Paul say this to Timothy? It may be because Timothy might be susceptible to some of these things. And it may be if Timothy is, then we might be as well. So this is the one that I offer to you. I haven't tried it yet, but if you want somebody to leave your house, sprinkle salt behind them and they'll go away. This is an old Greek thing, right? Uh, A sneeze means someone is thinking about you and touch red in order to avoid a fight. I see some red in here. So the notion is we're going back to the time of Zeus, right? I mean, we're back there with Hector and those guys. If you say the same thing at the same time, you have to touch red. (laughs) What do we do? When you say the same thing at the same time. Oh, you get to, what was this? Anyway, everybody has something for that. This is a common human thing. Now, here at First Colony Bible Chapel, we are a biblically taught congregation. We are a friendly church. But the most vital point of this church is that we teach the whole counsel of God. No matter how uncomfortable it might be, we don't dodge anything if it is in the text. 
Yet I, I just want to say, though, it is not easy to stem the cultural tide. I mean, and this is a simple thing. I'm not going to bring up anything complicated at all. But many of you, well, some of us, may remember when door-to-door evangelism was an effective way to reach people for Jesus Christ. Do you know why that was the case? It worked because nearly everyone in the country held the same values, or at least were aware of them. So when you knocked on a door, you knew you were talking to 97 out of 100 times someone who believed and revered, believed in and revered God. Now, that number is far less. Far less. Everything that you knew, they knew. Maybe they didn't believe, but they were aware of. And back in that time, the dating system, right, was B.C. and A.D. A.D. does not stand for after death, by the way. It's a Latin phrase that means in the year of our Lord, B.C. before Christ. But now it's B.C.C. What? What does B.C.C. mean? I just want to get back at these guys who say sermons are ridiculous and we don't ever have any. You can't say anything before the common era. Right. Uh, BCE, I meant. Did I say BCC? That's the uh, that's the basic chaplain course. And I must have had some sort of flashback. And then we have uh, instead of A.D., we have C, uh, C.E., which is the common era. And Paul felt that these silly myths were the opposite of the training in godliness, and therefore they were to be rejected. There are many distracting things. I mean, there are all manner, especially in our society today. Even people who have the same vision, the same values, the same goals— have to carve out of their schedule the ability to meet together or to play together. And these are people who want to do this. We're so fragmented, we're all over the place. And so it becomes difficulty. We can be distracted. Many things can take our attentions, but let's not let myths be one of them. Now, the word uh, godliness here is not actually in the text, but it is implied. What what Paul is talking about is this common, uh, superstitious uh, nonsense. Nothing will happen to you if you walk under a ladder. Uh, I mean, unless... Yeah, where did that come from? It came from a real place, right? I mean, you know, somebody dropped something off the ladder while you happened, you know, sad. But it's not because there's some, uh, you know... Uh, unseen spiritual thing that's going to happen to you. And we must heed the warning of the apostles. Stay away from that stuff. I view like things like date setting I put in the same category. It wastes your time. It means nothing. Live in the view that Jesus Christ is coming back. That's the important thing. What we should do with our time is, is build others in the faith Nourish ourselves with the word of God. Practice the truth in our daily life and faith and give daily attention so that we might be 
well-fed, that we might be strong. Fifth, there's more here. Work out in the gym of spiritual discipline. And Paul wrote this, okay, rather than those things, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I hope you hear many things that you're able to carry with you from a a sermon. But one of the essential takeaways that I have from today's message is that you cannot drift into godliness. You do not drift into spirituality and spiritual disciplines. You cannot get up in the morning and do your thing all day long and expect to grow in the faith if your thing doesn't include the word of God and prayer and fellowship and community in the faith. Yet none of us have time. We don't. Ask anyone who's retired. They'll tell you, I don't know how I had time to work. You think I'm kidding? Ask one. You carve out the time. You make the time. You commit yourself to the time of study, of reading, of meditation, and of prayer. And then you will have time for the other things, the ordinary demands of life. Paul did not wish he had time for prayer and reading and meditation. He took the time. He made the time. He underlines that for us in verse 9 when he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Five times in the letter he, he says that. Same, same little phrase. And what he's saying is, listen up. This is important. Do this. Train yourself. Bodily exercise is fine, right? But godliness is going to profit here and in the uh, time to come. What Paul is doing here is directly associating uh, this with a conditioned athlete's dedication, commitment, and drive. That's, that's the exact comparison. The word that he used here is the word for gym. It's what we use. We have our word. Our word gym comes from the Greek word gymnazo, right? Okay, so it's the same thing. Timothy clearly understood what he meant. If you want to get in shape, if you want to get in flex in front of the mirror, you better go to the gym. Unless you're Herschel Walker. He just does. It's a genetic thing. But nevertheless, for the rest of us mere mortals, you have to work out. If you want to be godly, he says to Timothy, you don't fall into it. It takes effort. It takes discipline. So I don't think Paul gave himself extensively to physical exercise. He wrote it has certain value. So he did value it. But I'll guarantee you this, and if you've ever been to Europe, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe some other places around the world, too. Certainly not here. I, I suppose maybe if you lived in Montana, I guess, maybe. But Paul was a walker. 
for sure. I mean, we just look what look what he did. On one occasion in the book of Acts, the ship parked right on one side of the peninsula. And it was 20 miles to the other side. And Paul just said, you know, I need time for quiet reflection. So I'm going to, you're going to go around. They're going to go around. I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk over there. Yeah. <laughs> when was the last time you walked 20 miles over open terrain? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the, he was in good shape. And I think, by the way, if you go to the gym for physical exercise today, I think that's a wonderful thing. And I'll tell you why. It is necessary because most of us sit in an office. Yeah, we're not work, We're not plowing a field. If you plowed a field all day and then you went to the gym, you're nuts. You've already done your thing. We need to do our thing. So get out there and ride your bike and run and, and all of that sort of thing. But Paul, was he was in shape. And so then he closes with this. It's a very significant word about hope in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That is what motivated the Apostle Paul, was this hope that he had in the living God. We toil and we strive. Again, age referenced, but... They, you may still see it from time to time. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. That's the word here. This is the word where we get our word agony from. This notion is, is that we toil and we strive. Ministry is what? Ultimately working with other people. And this is a word that talks about how it is not easy to wholly devote yourself so that you are given to it effort, decision, commitment, action, the whole thing. Paul gives us two things we need to look at in that last word that he gave. First, while we toil and strive, while we agony, zomai is the word, while we agony, Salvation is not the goal. Just here, some, in fact, many, fail to understand the nature of the Christian life. We toil and we strive not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Jesus is our Savior, not you, not me, not us. Why? I mean, the text tells us right there, our hope is set on the living God. Our function is not to save. You don't save anybody. You may be delighted to be the one that the Lord used to bring someone else to faith, but you didn't save that person. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. All of our toiling is the same way in striving is that as a runner running for the prize. Paul talks about this in other places. The goal is the Lord. All we do and all we say is for his glory. We are not striving for acceptance. That's not what this is. Our goal 
to use Benjamin Franklin's words, is not to hear well said. I, I, I don't want the Savior to say to me when I get into glory, well said, John. I want to hear him say, well done. Well done who? Who? The same thing that he calls Timothy. The same thing that Paul calls Timothy. A faithful servant, a good servant. And then he says, who is the savior of all men. The theologians have wrapped themselves into pretzels around this. And I'm certainly not going to enter any debate about it at large, certainly not from the pulpit. And, and besides that, in my experience, I find it to be a, a, a fruitless and at times counterproductive exercise. But Paul, just a page before, in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, says something that may help explain what he means. Paul wrote, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So the same person, within a few verses, says something almost identical, and it has this notion of what it is that God desires. It's crystal clear from the words of Christ himself that not all will be saved. All people, though, have life and breath because of Christ, yet not all will have eternal life with Christ. Jesus has made salvation available to all. He is the Savior of all, potentially everyone in the world, could be saved if they trusted Christ. It's not a stretch for the blood of Christ shed for us to save all. That's not a stretch. But that's also not the issue. The potentiality of it has to have the reality of belief that we bring, that the Holy Spirit brings within us. There is no other Savior Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given among men. No one can deliver us but Jesus. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Howard Hendricks said that man is almost insanely committed to the proposition that he has the answers to his problems. We do not. That lies with the Lord. So what are you hoping in? Are you hoping in God? In what ways is God calling you to hope? Can we grow in that hope? Because our hope is not simply for eternity. It's for this afternoon. <laughs> it's for tomorrow. Hope is at the core of the kind of man or woman who can make a lasting imprint on this society. And trust me, we look more and more different every day. Therefore, do these things that Paul is telling Timothy and be, as I would say, what Prof. Hendricks told me, kind. 
and encouraging to everyone you meet. It may be the only kindness they experience. Father, we, we are before you. We are thanking you. I, I just thank you that you chose the Apostle Paul. What a brilliant mind. What a brilliant writer. And Lord, here at the, towards the close of his life, he's sharing those things that, that through it all, he found most important to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And may we carefully listen to that ancient conversation and take it into our own hearts as if Paul was saying those words to us, energized through the power of your spirit. We thank you. We praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.